Welcome to Messages of Necessity, a new podcast by the Empire Center for Public Policy based in New York. I'm Debbie Gatte. I'm a board member at the Empire Center. I'm Tim Hofer. I'm the president and CEO of the Empire Center. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Thank you. So what is this? What is Messages of Necessity? Well, here we are, the very first episode of our very first podcast called Messages of Necessity. Mm -hmm. And so what we need to talk about is what is a message of necessity? I mean, I first heard that we did some brainstorming. What should we call this podcast? And there were some pretty interesting ideas, but this one really stood out. I thought it meant like there are very important things that people in New York want to know about and that we need to get these messages out because they're urgent. It turns out that it means something specific in terms of our state government. So what is that? message of necessity is a legislative process. Um, it is most often used in Albany during the budgeting process when the legislature gets together and they have to introduce budget bills so they can pass a state budget. Um, they often are very, very behind schedule and so to hit an arbitrary budget deadline they pass something called a message of necessity. It comes from the governor's desk, they can hand it down, and it prevents a bill from having to go through the aging process. Typically a bill would have to sit for three days before legislators could vote on it, which does things like allow the legislators to read thousands of pages of budget bills. Um, but in this instance, when you have a message of necessity, you can bypass that and just pass it. Oh, so we're kind of skipping some important steps when that happens. And does that mean, wow, that means people aren't actually reading it? Necessarily. It makes it much harder to read it, that's okay. for sure. So this is a different kind of messages of necessity. This is what do we need to make sure our people in Albany know, the people are making these decisions. What do people in New York think are the messages of necessity? And that's what we're going to be focused on. So what can people expect, Tim, when they tune in for this show? Well, we're excited. This is our very first podcast. It's the very first episode today. Mm -hmm. um, so message of necessities is going to be, we keep calling it a variety show. Mm -hmm. There's going to be three different components of this. There's You're not going gonna to sing and dance though. Well, I'm not going to sing and neither, dance. Me neither. All right, great. Yeah. Um, that, that's out of the way. You can stay listening. <laughs> um, so three segments. Yes. Uh, the first is going to be like a news aggregator. We're mm -hmm. going to just talk about the headlines, um, what's been going on. It's going to be bi-weekly. So we're going to have couple weeks worth of, of things built up and just give you a really quick take on what those are. Then there's going to be something like this where yeah. some folks from the Empire Center and um, people that we know are going to take a complicated issue. Uh, we're going to try and dispel it as quickly as we can and as simply as we can and just try to increase your awareness of what's happening in and around Albany. And then the third part will be a longer interview. Um, this week I'm talking with Assemblyman Gottfried from Manhattan. Um, what's been going on in the assembly, what's happening in his personal life, oddly enough, um, and, and what it all means in the long term. And so there'll be a rotating cast of people who come in. Debbie and I will handle most of those interviews. Um, we think it's going to be really fun. I mean, the way we're thinking about it, this is going to be thoughtful, but not wonky. And why we're excited is we're going to be hearing for some voices in New York that you may not you know, you may not run into if you're just paying attention to the news. There are a lot of people in New York who care about what's happening in the state. They really want to see things get better. They want New York to be a better place to live and work. And we're going to be talking to those people and hearing their very interesting stories from all parts of the state. So please join us. Uh, we hope you enjoy the show. Drop us a line. Let, let us know what you think. And we're on to our messages of necessity. Here we go. Here we Thanks. go. Welcome to the first episode of Messages of Necessity. My name is James, 
And it's now my job to give you some of the news stories having the biggest impact on public policy across the state of New York. So let's dive right in. After House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced her intent to retire from House Democratic leadership, Representative Hakeem Jeffries of Brooklyn announced that he is intending to succeed it. And on the Republican side, Lee Zeldin, who ran for governor and nearly won an upset election against Governor Kathy Hochul, seems poised to run for Republican National Committee chair. Of course, this would put the whole country in a New York state of mind. Next up, the New York Post has a story about a new report from State Comptroller Tom DiNapoli on what could possibly be the largest mishandling of state funds in state history. According to the report, $11 billion of state unemployment insurance money was stolen in the year after the coronavirus pandemic hit. We're still waiting to hear on how the state plans on recouping this money, if at all. And finally, in an interesting story from WRVO that demonstrates the strange bedfellows in New York, winemakers in the Finger Lakes are trying to pressure Governor Kathy Hochul to take action against a local cryptocurrency operation. They say the plant is impacting the way they do business because of environmental considerations. Not ironically, there's currently a two-year moratorium against new air permits for existing cryptocurrency operations awaiting the governor's approval or veto. Governor Kathy Hochul has yet to give an indication on how she'll come down on the measure. We'll see if all the whining is going to have an impact on the eventual crypto mining. And that's the news in New York. Until next time. Okay, welcome back to another episode of Messages of Necessity. Assemblyman, welcome. Thank you for coming. My pleasure. So with me today is Assemblyman Gottfried, who represents the 75th Assembly District in Manhattan. He is the longtime chair of the Assembly Health Committee, I believe, since 1987. Yes. All right. Um, so you've been around Albany for a couple of years. Um, I was elected in 1970, so I am finishing my 52nd uh, year in the legislature. Are you the longest tenured member currently serving? Uh, I am the longest serving member of either house in New York State history. Okay, that's even not, better than I thought. Not for the other states, but for New York. Very good. But that's all about to change. What's going to happen in December? Well, on New Year's Eve, I, uh, I turn into a private citizen. I, I am retiring from the legislature. Okay. Well, uh, first of all, we, we thank you for your service. Um, I've been around long enough to see the kind of legislator you are and the kind of work that you do on behalf of the people of New York State. And any differences you and I might have, um, we can appreciate the way that you serve, your intentions, and the good work that has been coming out of that. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. And and I tell you, you know, I, my main contact with the Empire Center over the years uh, is with Bill Hammond. Um, and while he and I certainly have uh, policy differences on a lot of questions, um, I have just always been thoroughly impressed with, uh, with his intelligence and his perception and uh, you know, his, his dedication to principle and, and he's a terrific journalist and does terrific research and you're lucky to have him. I could possibly agree more. Um, so, so thinking about your tenure and I, we're going to circle back to a couple of those points you just made, maybe in a couple minutes, 
But I want to give you a chance to be a reflective um, about your time in the legislature. And so two questions related to that. Um, first, you must have a best favorite success. What is it? What's the thing that you'll look back on come January and be the most proud of? Well, I, I, I've thought a lot about that. Um, and I would say two things. One, as, as health chair, um, the enacting back in 1990 of the earliest stages of the Child Health Plus program, which uh, started out very small, but which we uh, have greatly expanded uh, over the succeeding few years and became the model for the child health insurance program uh, that now every state in the union has with, uh, with very substantial federal matching money. Uh, and uh, I, I think as health chair, that's uh, the thing I'm proudest of, of many things. Uh, as a legislator in general, uh, one of my other proudest achievements is uh, sponsoring and, and helping to write uh, the legislation creating the Hudson River Park on the west side of Manhattan. Yeah, I, and maybe the thing that I left off of um, your introduction is that in addition to being revered and respected in New York, you've sort of become a national figure on these healthcare issues and you have driven a lot of that. And so um, that's important context. And anything else, you got a little bit ahead of me, any, anything else in terms of things that are still on the table as you, as you think about walking away? Well, uh, by far the, the most important important thing I'm, I've been working on and, and I would say my, my biggest disappointment because it hasn't become law yet uh, is the New York Health Act, which is uh, my bill to create uh, a, a universal single payer health plan for New York State. Uh, you know, I have from the start believed that uh, almost every problem we face in in health and healthcare as, as patients, as providers, as employers, as taxpayers uh, is made worse and harder to solve uh, because of the way we pay for, uh, for healthcare in this country and, and in New York. Uh, and while I, I, I wouldn't claim that the New York Health Act is the answer to every problem in the health area, uh, I think it is the key to uh, an awful lot of the things that beset us in health and healthcare. Yeah, well, speaking of things we might not agree on. Um, yes. Uh, but, but but so I don't, you know, certainly there's a problem and there's, and there's things to be solved. One of the reasons that we particularly sought you out to be on this show and to be the first guest for our podcast um, is because actually of the discourse that we've had around this issue. Um, I've been around Albany long enough, um, not quite as long as you have, but I've been around Albany long enough to have seen the way that we have conversations and debates and policy discussions has changed significantly. Um, certainly in the last 10 years, um, absolutely in the last 20 years or so, and I imagine even more since then. And so what I what I wanted to get into about that, and, and so we've appreciated the ability to have these conversations with you. You've participated in several of our um, policy debates and discussions and forums and conferences that we've had. 
presenting often an opposing viewpoint to what I have or what Bill has or what the Empire Center is talking about. And we've been able to do that on a very academic, cordial way in which I think we're helping to further the dialogue rather than tear it down and tear it apart. So you've been sort of firsthand witnessing those changes happen in Albany. Can you talk a little bit about that, what you've seen and, and what your takeaways are from that? Well, I, I think going back you know, to the 1970s uh, when I first arrived, um, I think the biggest change that I, I, I think that I've seen in the legislature is that the, the percentage of state legislators uh, who run for the, for the job and, and, and stay in the job because they care about policy as opposed to just the next rung on their, on their political career uh, is a much higher percentage uh, than when I got here. Uh, when I got here, it was relatively common that uh, a fair number of legislators, you know, were had had been in had, had you know were were loyal parts of their local party organization. They had been an assistant district attorney. They behaved, so they got elected to the legislature. If they behave, maybe they get their ultimate life goal uh, and become a judge. Um, uh, starting in the in, in the early and mid '70s, a, a a growing proportion of of legislators are people who are in it because they 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 really want to work on policy and 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 affect things. Uh, and people on the right, people on this in the center, people on the left uh, fit that description. Uh, and, and so I, I think in many ways, the caliber of a lot of discussions in the legislature uh, has improved. And the professional staffing of members of the legislature, which enables us to, to be much more uh, independent voices on substance, uh, uh, the professional staff in both houses and both sides of the aisle uh, is much more uh, than when I arrived. And, and I think that's, that's all to the good. Um, uh, you know, since the night, the, the 2018 election, both houses of the legislature have, have had, uh, you know, very strong democratic majorities and, and we've had a democratic governor. Um, but in most of my tenure, uh, you know, we had a Democratic Assembly and a Republican State Senate, and often a Republican governor. Um, but even in in those years, uh, compared to what I sense is the case in some other states, and certainly what I sense is the case in Washington, uh, Demo the Democratic majority in the Assembly, the Republican majority in the Senate. And the governor of, of either party uh, have worked together uh, pretty substantively. Um, you know, at any given moment, one governor or another might be might have, as we say, sharper elbows uh, than some other governor. Uh, not mentioning any names offhand, <laughs> um, uh, but. You know, when we had a Republican majority in the state Senate, uh, we still got about a thousand bills passed a year uh, because the the two majorities worked together because 
if we wanted to go home with anything that we would have achieved, uh, we had to work together. Uh, yeah. And that, you know, there are a lot of places and a lot of parts of the political process where that doesn't happen. And, you know, I can't say for sure that if uh, that if somehow we woke up tomorrow and the Republicans had a majority in the state Senate, I can't predict that uh, we would still get along as, as well as we did uh, before 2018. Um, uh, but certainly my experience is that from 75 through 2018, when we had that divided control in the legislature, uh, we worked together and got a lot done. Um, I, and that is maybe closer to the premise and that I was trying to get to was this idea of being able to compromise, to work together. It feels like that's different. That's the scientific term. Um, but it seems like the way that we communicate and think about compromise and the ability of whether it's inter-party or intra-party or, or however that dynamic's going to be, um, and of course, there's an election next week. By the time this airs, it'll have happened already, and we don't know what'll happen. But we can be relatively sure that there's still going to be some strong Democratic majorities in in the state. Um, and so, thinking about the way that these different groups work together and talk to each other, my, my viewpoint would be that that's changed probably for the worse. I think it's it's harder to have opposing viewpoints. Um, certainly at the Empire Center, we approach things from a more fiscally conservative viewpoint. Um, and it seems like it's harder to get some of those, those issues aired, um, to be a part of that dialogue. And that, I'm that one, when I worry about what's coming next, it's not necessarily that people are going to listen to Tim Hofer, um, but rather is there room in conversations for differing views? And so has that changed? I mean, is, I think that's what you're getting to also, but has that changed yeah. in a significant way? In the assembly, and I, I know obviously our house a lot better than I know the state Senate. Uh, in the assembly, I, I, I think you're, you're right to say that there are on the Democratic side, there are more uh, very adamantly, shall we say, members on the left uh, than there were a few years ago. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, a lot of them may be, some of them may be angrier, maybe less tolerant of, 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 of less left-leaning or more moderate Democrats. Um, I think that's probably true. I, I don't think it dominates our caucus or close to it, but yeah, there are some more strident uh, voices on the Democratic side. Um, and there are, on the Republican side, um, there are some members and I, I think it's still a minority of members on the Republican side who are angrier and more strident than you would have seen four or five or six years ago. 
Yeah, um, and I, I, I mean, so, so this is just the law of the squeaky wheel, right? The, the squeaky wheels are the ones you hear. They're making the most noise. They're the far sides of both. I, I think that's, I think that's right. Um, but I, it's, it's almost comforting to hear you talk about it being a minority of those members. And so, what you don't always get to see from the outside. Um, is what the inner workings of you talk about your caucus. And so if that's a minority member, um, the hope would be then that they have a minority viewpoint in what's happening through the conference and that it is the more moderate sort of level-headed, uh, maybe that's not the right word, but it's it's yeah. the other members who who are the majority, who are getting that majority stake in the conversation and the things. Is that Does that track? Yeah, uh, of course, you know, our... Our democratic majority in the assembly, and, and, and this is true going back to when we first became the majority after the 74 uh, Watergate landslide, um, uh, has always been a, a pretty diverse group. Uh, we have quite a few members uh, in our majority representing districts that before they got elected were, uh, were reasonably safe Republican districts. And you know, they, their moderate centrist politics reflects that, you know, they, they would not get reelected if they have, if they had the same views that I have, or that the handful of members on our side who are members of the Democratic Socialists of America, if, you know, if they had those views. Um, and, you know, the, the speaker of the assembly always has to work to make sure that our majority uh, does its best uh, to serve all of the members of the majority, th those who are you know, fairly strident on the left and those who are uh, a lot more centrist and moderate. Uh, because if not, we don't get to keep our strong majority. And so, uh, you know, our, our internal discussions do tend to, uh, you know, produce uh, an overall package uh, that, uh, that just about everybody, uh, you know, at least in the majority uh, party can, can go home with. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that was true when the Republicans had a majority in the state Senate. Yeah, well, po political party aside, um, the feat of keeping a hundred plus members in a conference, uh, sort of marching in the same direction, is a is a feat that's not to be undercounted. Um, oh yes, uh, a, a job that I've never wanted. That's for <laughs> sure. So, uh, all right, well, we're running low. I have three quick questions, um, and then we'll let you get on with your day. What could you name one thing that could happen, not maybe not legislatively, but maybe process or even in an attitude sense um, that could change that a change that could happen in Albany within state government that would be impactful? Um, well, if we were ever to lose our minds entirely and enact term limits, that would change the legislature dramatically. Um, it would greatly enhance the power of the staff and of the lobbying community. Um, uh, certainly a, a Republican majority in either house of the legislature or a Republican governor uh, 
would dramatically change things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what about, all right. I, more I, dramatically today than when George Pataki became governor. George Pataki was, was a, a, a very moderate Republican, certainly compared to a lot of today's Republicans. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think that goes back to what the conversation we're having before about the the tenor and tone of conversations is is different. Yeah. Um, what, so, you know, looking back on your on on the last fifty some odd years, what are your hopes for New York in the next five or ten years? Well, um, I certainly hope we enact my New York Health Act, um, and I'll be trying to help make that happen. Um, I I hope our our politics in both chambers and the executive branch uh, remains on on a on a pretty even keel. Uh, uh, and I guess by the time this airs, we'll we'll have a little a lot more information on that score. Um, I uh, I think those are that's my main thought. All right, and so la last one, uh, and you might have just previewed this a little bit, but now you get to retire. What are you going to do that's fun? Oh, um, my wife and I are looking forward to doing a lot of traveling because between her work schedule before she retired and my work schedule, we never really had much ability to to go away anywhere. Um, my two hobbies are doing Chinese calligraphy and watercolor painting. And I've already started doing a lot more of both of those. That's awesome. Well, well, I'll let you go. This was um, this was awesome. I wish you the very, very best in everything that's coming up. We thank you for doing this. I thank you for your leadership and your service to the state of New York. Um, we appreciate it. And I, I hope we get to see you again someday. Well, thank you. And keep up your work, too. Appreciate it. All right. Take care. All right. Thanks.